Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that essentially serves as uh, self-help and mental health resources for people navigating herpes stigma. You can visit the new website, which is up and running right now. I think it's complete, uh, www.spfpp.org. You'll notice some changes. It doesn't look like a newspaper that a 12-year-old put together online anymore. Um, I actually went out and got some professional help. Shout out to my friend, Jenny, for putting that website together. And you can support us by donating uh, at www.spfpp.org, which is a lot easier for you to find how to do that. And you can also leave a rating review for the podcast. Today's episode is going to focus more on healthcare. So if you're here for herpes stuff, go ahead and go to a previous episode or skip to the next episode. But this is still a very important uh, discussion to be had because I think that it sort of... uh, explains or sets the stage for what's to come from something positive for positive people. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be the very next thing done, but so far I've done so much interviewing on the patient's perspective of what it means to receive a SCI diagnosis, but there's not really anything from the healthcare providers. We hear from people who have good experiences, bad experiences, and experiences that don't necessarily stand out. But uh, I want to give healthcare providers um, sort of an opportunity to speak to what their needs are, what they're seeing, and how we can be better patients as well from their perspective. And I want to take the lessons from you all and incorporate that into some form of an intervention to support healthcare providers with being better providers. So today I brought on my, now we become friends, we used to be work colleagues, uh, (laughs) Emily, and uh, Emily and I met in 2018 i want to say it was toward the end of 2018 middle or end of 2018 and we started working together if you've been listening for a while you remember uh those dating positive ads dating positives dating positives yeah that's how old it is yeah (laughs) but um yeah we were working together on that and part of that was this campaign called um we need a button which was advocating for queer friendly health care and is there was it more than that i tried to like simplify it. that's how i would explain it to people yeah hello everybody um yeah we need a button was well there was two parts of it the the deep purpose of it was to bring to light the fact that queer people um basically i would say it's very hard to me it's very hard to meet a queer person who hasn't had a negative experience in a medical setting for whatever reason. Um, I would, but I would actually say probably just everyone on earth. <laughs> um, it's sad, but we were focusing on queer people at that time. And the idea was, wouldn't it be nice if there was a way where you could find out if your provider was competent and not just, I mean, not just competent, but affirming when they provided their care hence the button of like a filter on something like zocdoc which might kind of exist but the problem is with the existing buttons for things like that it's hard to know exactly how they're actually coming up with those ratings and responses so the idea is how can you vet a provider better how can there be a big list where people can find these um you know 
these affirming providers. And then the other part of that, if you remember, was the the pun on button with butt. And it was like, take a butt selfie. It was during Pride. It was like, show off your butt uh, in a cheeky way, ha ha ha, to kind of make this declaration of, yeah, healthcare kind of sucks. How can it be better for us? Yeah. And unfortunately, that that just kind of died, did it? The whole thing died. We don't work there anymore. Uh, yeah, I'm not even, as I was just saying, I'm not even on speaking terms with the company who kind of put that together. So I don't think they're doing anything with that. Yeah, you're, you're doing something completely different now. Yeah, I'm doing something completely different <laughs> now. And, uh, and honestly, that I will just say that that was... Uh, the best part of that experience was meeting you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You were very ple- pleasant to work with. So, um, yeah, I thought that you'd be a really great person to come on and, I guess, just, like, speak to uh, that campaign, the way that you just did, of course. And this, to me, is more like an accountability podcast for me to actually do what I say I'm going to do. Because... Um, one of our, one of my board members, Dr. Evelyn Molina Dacker, she just gave a donation of $50,000 to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, and it's very difficult for me to quantify what it is that I do, uh, but I know that she's a family care physician. She's very much um, an advocate for sex positivity and she is like an, uh, the alternative, the most like, queer friendly healthcare provider accepting uh provider that you could come across so um we had been in conversations about something like this before which is essentially putting together um opportunities for healthcare providers to take a sexual history and allow for them to receive feedback from their patients so this would kind of require me to recruit sex educators or people or even just give like everyday people um, a general training and uh, have them get tested and share with me what their experience is and then reach out. I, I don't know exactly what this looks like. I've made outlines, I've presented like proposals uh, in different ways. And the more I talk about it, the more it changes and sort of refines itself. But I think that in a nutshell, that is what I would like to see happen. I would like to be able to bring in people who are um, at a good place to go into a healthcare facility and potentially be triggered and also be able to provide feedback because healthcare providers don't get a lot of experience with sex, STIs, talking about it, uh, and they go out into the world and they treat it as sort of clinical or technical in the ways that they were taught to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't quite reflect our experiences. You know, uh, there was a statistic I saw at a Planned Parenthood. It said 60, it was like 68% and 72%. And I forget which statistic applied to which, but um, healthcare providers don't initiate conversations about sex with their patients. And then patients don't initiate uh, conversations with their health provider about sex. So there's like 20-ish 28, 28 or 32% of people uh, where conversations are even being had about sex and we don't really know who's initiating that conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think that there needs to be a little bit of comfort there. And I think that something like this um, in this conversation is 
a gateway or segue into being able to bridge that gap in communication. Yeah. Well, and I think to what you, you know, I agree. And I think like something that I learned from you or something that you just drilled home to me, you know, ever since we met and ever since I started listening to your podcast is how important, um, and this should, you know, this is kind of obvious once you think about it, but it's like, it's so much more than the medical technical side of the healthcare that you receive, right? It's like, there's that emotional, and that's what something that you are doing. And one of the many things that you do in terms of filling the gaps is providing that emotional support. Um, and But wouldn't that be nice if we could get that in the doctor's office where, okay, we're getting some news that might be difficult, but the provider's actually taking some time to really talk to us, maybe even give us a fucking hug or something. I mean, you know, depending on if that's something that, you, but you know what I mean? Like it, it, it so often just feels rushed and that's, I mean, cause okay. Like I've, I've, you know, aside from us working together, um, at that, you know, marketing PR place, that was where the dating positives came from. I've, I've written a show about healthcare cause it's so shitty. I went to grad school for journalism and focused on healthcare because it it's broken in so many ways and it affects us in so many ways. And something that I've noticed and realized is forget if they're a bad provider, a good provider in terms of their ignorance, whatever. They're also just dealing with the fact that quite often they only have 15 minutes to do the whole visit with you because, and that's not their fault. That's literally like, I was looking at my little portal. I have an appointment coming up for a gynecology visit and it's 15 minutes long. Like, what are we going to do? You know, and that's what we're then realizing. Cause I, I went through a phase where I would call out doctors when they'd come in late and I'd be like, hi, like, you know, I don't want to start off on a bad note, but I'm just stressed out now. Cause I've been waiting for 45 minutes, you know, which is so common, right? We don't usually get even seen on time. And I actually had a few doctors say, well, you know, it's because I only technically have 15 minutes with each patient because of the like rules of the practice and insurance billing. And so I'm running late because I can't do, you know, so that's actually, and that made me feel a little better when I'm now that when I am waiting, I'm like, okay, well, it's because they're trying to give more than 15 minutes to the person before. So all to say, it doesn't excuse other shitty things, but I do think that in a way, even doctors and nurses and providers who want to do well, they are working in shitty conditions that aren't actually meant to, you know, be good for the patient. And then there's then the shitty people who are just shitty assholes. And that's a whole, that's like often a separate thing. So yeah, it's just, it's a, it's shitty, but I, I love your idea of finding a way to do really thoughtful vetting of, I think practices and then providers individually, because that's the other thing. You can go to a place, like I'm going to a queer, um, a, like it's called Callan Lord. Anyone in New York has probably heard of it. It's a queer clinic here in New York City. They're very great in certain ways, you know, especially being queer and trans affirming. But that doesn't mean every provider there is good, <laughs> you know, and there's also other problems. So it's like, yeah, I think I really like your idea. Um, so I work at a medical university and we do these simulations. I'll read a script. I'm this person. I have these issues. And then I go in and the medical student has to figure out what's wrong 
And all while doing that, like, I'm judging and critiquing their communication with me, like how they're making me feel as a patient and providing feedback on that. So what I'm learning is that in the setting, like these are people. And just like how you said, you mentioned, uh, hey, you know, I'm a little bit stressed. I've been waiting for 45 minutes. And then they were able to explain to you. I think that once we introduce them to the idea that it's okay to be human and you can say, hey, oh, I, I needed to be with this other patient for a little bit longer than what's required. We're supposed to have 15 minutes. That, to me, really humanized healthcare professionals, in my opinion, because we don't see that. I think we look to them as the end-all, be-all, know-all. And for me to see them in the student stages, you know, kind of like a little bit nervous or fumbling through things, I'm like, wow, you know, y'all, you don't just be, you're not just be, uh, you don't just become a doctor, a nurse, a clinician. Like, you don't just get there. There's a pathway to that point and part of me thinks that like what you did in just engaging and addressing you know hey you did this here's how I felt not only enabled for the healthcare provider to like let their guard down and be human but also give you insight to a much bigger picture and I feel like that's what I'm able to do in the space that I'm in is see that component and go, oh, okay, here's an opportunity, you know, they, because how you just worded it made me think, okay, at an institution in medical school, there's this much time to get this much information across and then test and make sure that this information is consumed. So while small components of that, like we go to doctor when something's wrong Mm -hmm. and we want it fixed, that's point a like what we're there for but one thing that i see is that the more you can get a patient to share the better the care that you're able to receive or give to a patient too yes i thought you were about to say oh no i I, Um, yeah i am i i um well yes and i think i mean i love that you're doing um like medical simulations um that's something I've wanted to do too actually um that's been on my list of things um and that's and 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 that's another thing to remember too is the vast majority of medical school is not having these experiences like this training you're doing with them where they're actually they're dealing with a trained human being who's you know helping them learn their bedside manner and things like that that's a very small, small, small percentage of what they're learning. Most of it is like textbook, which again explains why some of them are total shit at doing what they do. And, you know, and I just want to say like, because I definitely advocate, like, I think more patients have to kind of stand up for themselves or share what they're going through in the interaction. But I will say that is not easy. I want to just say that that's not always easy because, you know, again, I'm someone who thinks about this a lot and I've still had times where because of that power dynamic, because yeah, they're human, but they still have a lot of power. And even if we know it logically, like, you know, whatever, I'm going to stand up to them. 
it's so easy to feel shut down and it only takes like one no from them or you know something condescending for you to be like okay never mind I'm no uh, for whatever okay I'll do what you say and I've had that too so I don't want to say oh yeah it's so easy stand up to your doctor but there's things you can do um like something that I've been doing recently with um because I was dealing with some health issues and it felt very overwhelming and as I'm sure a lot of people can relate to when you're in the middle of a, you know, especially an un, kind of an unknown, uncertain health situation, going to the doctors sometimes is the worst part of it. Cause you're just like, I just want an answer. I just want to be in the right place where this, hopefully this person knows what this is. And I was going through that and I felt so exhausted by the prospect of also having to repeat myself over and over to the different people. So I just started typing, like I would type a list and like give the paper and be like, can you please read this? Like at the very beginning, like, can you please read this? Cause I don't feel like I have the energy to explain it out loud. And what that let me do is also just make sure I didn't forget. Cause again, some in that, in the moment, depending on what they say or don't say, you can get thrown off. And sometimes you just forget that important thing you wanted to bring up and then, oh, it's over. And then you have to wait like sometimes months to see them again. So I really say if you have trouble speaking your, uh, you know, talking about whatever you're going through, I highly recommend typing a list. And it can even include things like I feel, you know, um, I get very nervous in medical interactions. Like, please be extra gentle with me and take extra time to explain. That can be on your list of things to ask for um because yeah they at the end of the day like in a way you're you are the customer so you have the right to really be clear of what you need from them at that time uh i'm glad you said that uh about the list because when i do talk to people who are newly diagnosed with herpes they don't generally know what questions to ask so they'll say my doctor did this i don't know what to do next and after a little bit of well i've had plenty of experience with speaking to people specifically about this uh i've been able to come up with general things that you may want to know um that are i guess relevant people often want to know things that there's just no answer to but it's okay to ask those questions and i think we expect from the healthcare provider to be the end all be all of whatever the solution or answer is. And that's not always the case. Um, one thing that I notice happens is that uh, generally people who receive a taking it back to herpes, herpes diagnosis, and I've tried, I tried to just stay away from it, but I can't. Um, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, just this herpes thing, man, just doesn't go away. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> but um, no, when people are receiving a diagnosis from a healthcare provider, the way that that diagnosis is delivered, it influences not only how a person goes on to disclose their status in the future, but if that person goes on to disclose their status in the future. And a lot of people don't really, that doesn't click with people until I word it that way, because a healthcare provider can be very dismissive and just be like, oh, herpes, no big deal. You're fine. Just wear condoms. And a person might be looking 
looking for a reason not to have to have this conversation with people. And this is a credible healthcare provider. Uh, we look to them as, you know, the, the almighty resource. So what that person says is word like that is law right mm -hmm. so uh, i've heard from people who've been told you don't have to disclose mm -hmm. i've heard um you can just wear a condom as long as you take medication you won't pass it on as long as you don't have symptoms or an outbreak then you're fine saying things in this way what that tells me is that there is an inconsistency across the board, specifically on how to talk about herpes. But this is just like one entry point to a much larger thing where there may be inconsistencies in just dealing with people. And if the people don't know what questions they have or what questions to ask, they're going to walk away from the doctor with whatever they gave them and just apply that to whatever questions may come up later, mm -hmm. right? And that's when I'm, I kind of want, I would love, I want someone listening. If that, if a doctor says, oh yeah, you don't need to tell anybody. I would love someone to ask the doctor, oh, so you'd be okay if someone didn't tell you about their sexual history? Ain't nobody who's newly diagnosed going to be in that place. I no, think, I know, but I'm just saying no, but asking but, that to the doctor. Yeah. It's like, so you'd, you, you wouldn't care if someone like of course i would yeah exactly like that's when it's like yeah that's when i want the human to talk to me and not just and you know you yeah we've talked about too and i think this is probably because of those sneaky little cdc guidelines that kind don't of don't get me started well i want to bring it up we don't have to go there so far but it's again like it's just frustrating I, again this is at callan lord which is supposed to be it's like very sex positive queer whatever they're all about i mean every time i go they're like do you want me to swab your throat for like gonorrhea i'm like you know they're very like they're very open and positive in some ways but i wanted to get tested for lyme disease because when i was going through my symptoms it seemed it you know it could have been lyme it could have been autoimmune disease so i was like i want to be tested for lyme disease and my, the doctor who I've since kind of fired as my doctor. I can talk about that later, but I was having such bad experiences with them, including the fact that, yeah, I asked for a Lyme disease test and you know what they said? They said, no, I don't like doing that. Um, if you didn't have a known bite, like if you didn't know you were bitten by a tick, I don't like testing for Lyme disease because it's just an antibody test. And so I don't like doing that because it's like the herpes test. It gives you, we might give you like a false notion that you are positive when maybe you just have the antibodies. There's and, a better way of saying that. Like there's a much better yeah, way. Yeah, but I'm also like, maybe I want to know if I have the antibodies. Like, let's cross that bridge. Like, I, you're saying I'm going to freak out because I know I have antibodies. Like, how about you help me not freak out? Like, why don't we just find out and then we can decide what to do from there. But the worst is being told no when, because my thing too is, uh, we could talk about this later too. I think there's a lot of limits to what medicine can even do for us at this point. But one thing they can do, the Western medicine, is give us blood work and like, you know, things like x-rays and MRIs. So that felt really to me, I'm like, that's the one thing you can do for me where we can do a test. And you're saying no, because you, you don't want to get scared. I mean, it just... Yeah, and the fact that they brought up that it was related to herpes, I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Yeah. Like, how many people are you saying no to who are asking for a herpes test because you, for the same reasons? And again, sure, maybe it's a, a little um, ambiguous, but at least, like, what's the harm in knowing? And maybe that'll reduce stigma if 
the provider's like, sure, let's find out if you just have the antibodies. And what might that mean? Doctors don't like it when there's no clear answer on things, but I think they have to get a little more used to it because there's so much gray area in our health. Yeah. Um, I was going to touch on something and then I let it go. And then I was going to comment on the last thing that she said. And then I was trying to reference back to what you said before. And I I'm sorry. I've been, I've been going all over the no, place. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Because um, the closing statement that you made, what it makes me think of is, oh, I remember now the Lyme disease. And I wanted to bring that to herpes. There is no clear answer I, I really don't like the way that that person said i don't like doing this yeah i don't like doing this yeah. test because dot 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 i think that that's an example where the humanity comes in but it's just not it's not right it's not right. appropriate it's oh i personally just don't like doing that test we shouldn't do that test right. versus this being okay well are you having these particular symptoms and then ask these questions to the patient and say, okay, well, we generally test under these conditions. If you don't have those, it's likely that you are not experiencing any symptoms of Lyme disease. We can do a test. However, the results of that test are likely to not be accurate. And I will, I recommend against it. However, if you do want this test, I want to make sure that you have all of the information before moving forward. That is so much different I than, know. I don't like doing that test. I know. <laughs> I was going to say, Dr. Courtney, please, please be my Dr. Graham. all I can do. Yeah. No, but, and that you know what I did? It. You know what I did? I just went to another fucking doctor in the same practice and asked for the test from them. And they were like, okay. Yeah. Like I just have to go around them and that, but again, that's like, okay, that's wasting my time because I'm going to have to find somebody else. And guess what? It was negative. So, oh, we could have done it. And it was, you know, but whatever. But it wasn't a false negative it, becomes the issue now. Like I that mean, doesn't mind fuck you. No, I, I don't I think. I didn't mean to say, dang, I was doing so well. Yeah. Now I got to put the little E Oh, whoops. I definitely episode. said the F word too. Oh, so. We are now. Yeah. But anyway, I, it just, it's one of those things because again, I wanted the Lyme, I actually didn't, you know, I knew that it was probably not Lyme disease, but again, I think for so many of us, there's emotional things. Like for me, I have a good friend who you know, I have a good friend who has Lyme disease and it's really, de it's debilitated him. So for me, that's, it's almost like a health trigger. Like whenever I feel off, I'm like, do I have Lyme disease? <laughs> and I know I have, that's something I have to get over. But again, I was having real symptoms at this time. So for me, it was like, I just need to cross this off the list for my own mental health. And to be told, you know, no, I don't like that. I don't, I'm not going to do that. That really, you know, again, I was so rabidly like, I need to find this out that I just went to somebody else and they let me do it because I think they recognize like yeah this person just need <laughs> we just need to like do this yeah, and it was answer. fine so yeah I think that's the other thing sometimes doctors don't know it's like we actually we're asking for things because we really do know that we need it maybe just for emotional mental reasons mm -hmm. and yeah the way that we deliver the information is very important too um, in these simulations at the university that I work at uh, what I'm learning is a lot about conditions that are common and how 
easy they seem to be to like avoid. Diabetes is a perfect example. So my great grandma got diabetes. My grandfather got diabetes. I think my grandmother who died when I was 12 uh, had diabetes as well. I was like, man, diabetes is very prevalent. And it was actually my herpes diagnosis that made me start looking at sugar because that was something that triggered an outbreak for me. So I was like, oh, well, I'm going to watch my sugar. And I saw how much stuff has added sugar in it and i'm the sauce king oh I yeah put sauce on sauces everything. are the i'm also not doing sugar because of my like long oh. covid immune thing and yeah you can't have any sauce basically it's like <laughs> i i have i got peanut sauce i bought some peanut sauce at the store i was like i'm gonna make my own chinese food and when i was making it i put like my assortments of sauces i was like 40 grams of added sugar and all of these other things, and I, I see why my family has uh, had issues because there's everything that has added sugars. But here's what's interesting. So I learned this from a medical student. This is the best way that diabetes has been explained to me. When we eat, our body produces insulin, and insulin comes out to capture the carbs that are then turned into energy for us. Now. If we have too many carbs in one sitting, what happens is the amount of insulin that we produce can only take in so many carbs. Mm -hmm. The excess carbs then go, they turn into sugar. And that sugar is what we're unable to absorb and burn off as energy. That is where we end up with uh, like being in the diabetic state because we're unable to produce enough insulin for the carbs that we intake. So rather than... Um, it being a matter of take more insulin it really should be consume less carbs for per sitting and there was a period where i went i would do like every other day no meat and looking back this is the most ridiculous thing that i've ever done i would have mashed potatoes macaroni and cheese some type of bread and these are just like all carbs so i'm consuming <laughs> a day's worth of carbs in one sitting and that's just like lunch. What about dinner? Dinner's probably gonna be the same thing, right? And that's in one sitting. So if my body's only able to capture and bring in, let's say 40 grams of carbs, if I'm eating now a sandwich, which one slice of bread is like 20 grams of carbs. So boom, two of those, you got 40. And then a bag of chips or french fries, it's like another 30. And not, nobody's eating just one serving of chips. I don't care what Oh yeah, saying. no. So I'm doing that same thing. And so, it took for me to hear from a medical student how diabetes works for me to understand, oh, this isn't a matter of like, oh, I just need to work out more or uh, I need to exercise more or eat less sugar. It's every day things that I eat, like I have to essentially shift my pattern and consume less of that. Everyone just says, oh, eat more leafy greens. But the reality is you have to consume less carbs and and this is just like again something i learned from a student mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's hard too because that it's because again I, i've been changing my diet because of my immune system issues and sugar is bad for a lot of those things and it's in everything yeah but and alcohol <laughs> alcohol is super sugary but i'm also yeah i'm getting Anyway, my point is it's hard, though, because you find that stuff out. And like you said, then you kind of realize what is, you know, like sugar is a huge one. Because like you said, it's in bread, it's in alcohol, it's in sauces. Um, 
And so those changes are really hard to make. Very. Because it's not, yeah, it's not just taking a pill. It's like, okay, I have to rethink my breakfast. I have to rethink my lunch. I have to rethink my dinner. I have to rethink when is, when, like, what's, when do I want to do those things? Um, like, when is it worth it? Because I also, I have um, diabetes, a lot of that on my mom's side of the family, too. And so that, it's very worrisome. Um, that shit expensive. The, it's expensive the, and you can like lose your feet and yeah. none, and it fucks it fucks up a lot of it's like it fucks up your blood that's the other thing though it's like I, I the other thing I don't like this is making me think of another thing I don't like about western medicine and our healthcare system we it's everything's so separate but it's like with diabetes yes it affects your ability to like you know like a lot of times your pancreas doesn't work you're not able to produce your own insulin um but then that affects your blood. Like people with diabetes, like usually like their cuts heal, like take longer to heal. Like they get clots. Like that's why a lot of people have amputations. So it's also like, it affects so much more. Like it, it's, it's also connected. There's also, I don't know about type two, which may, that's the kind I think that's in my family. That's, that's the one that's in my family. But type one is an autoimmune thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing we don't understand. Like what is up with these autoimmune diseases because they yeah they do a lot of damage and there's quote-unquote there's no cure um conspiracy theory courtney thinks that we just produce the shit essentially like uh, healthcare is a business oh and we've got like the foods that are so easily accessible like you right. have to pay more for them to put less in your food oh yeah well i think conspiracy courtney is right in that we don't I mean there are actually some programs that are experimenting with like let's push healthy foods like in the hospital like let's give and like let's have that part let's have that be part of the treatment plan and it's because it's like yeah imagine if we just had good foods that didn't have corn syrup in them um because yeah treating things with pills will only get you so far especially if we put a mindset in people that like oh yeah if i just take this pill it'll undo all the bad and it's like no that's not gonna probably be enough if you're just stacked yeah because it it accumulates if i think that way oh well okay if i get high blood pressure then i can just take these pills but i'm going to continue to eat the kind of foods that have given me high blood pressure hypertension and those foods are also going to give you diabetes now diabetes and hypertension are things that i'm taking medication for these medications have their side effects i'm going to do something to alleviate those side effects and we get to a point where we're just like our body's just like hey you know i exist and i could (laughs) you know combat a lot of this if you just give me the right conditions in order to do so and we're just not taught to give our body those right conditions to do so. The few ads that we do see or the marketing that gears toward combating problems and taking pills is diet exercise. And even then it's like, it's something that we're being sold. And I don't think that there's any sort of a goodwill campaign that's just out there like, hey everybody, all things in moderation. 
because that's really yeah. what it's about. You know, I don't need peanut sauce, soy sauce, sweet and sour sauce, teriyaki sauce, and sweet and sour <laughs> sauce with my Chinese food meal of rice and chicken, right? Or with my chicken nuggets. I don't need barbecue sauce, ranch, buffalo sauce, polynesian <laughs> sauce, you know? You make me hungry. Yeah, like I'm not eating... <laughs> One of the things that's been messing me up is um, soy products in miso. Um, and so, yeah, I'm eating sushi with no soy sauce. It's doable. It's so dry. Is it dry? You don't have to make me, don't make me depressed. Wait, wait, wait. Do you do the, uh... I put, I use ginger. I'll still do some ginger and and wasabi. And, like, um, Lizzie has ginger in a jar that's, like, it has the juice so I can make it a little... Yeah, but it's a little... We just need to wet it. Yeah. (laughs) But honestly, though, I've learned, though, to be, like, okay, at least I get sushi. Yeah. That's how I'm trying to think of it. At least so I can have some. Mental. Yeah, at least I can have some sushi. Like, yes, I would like to have soy sauce, but I also don't want to like itch all night. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a give and take situation. And I also just want to say, I the thing that you're making me think too is I feel like a lot of the way that health things are presented, especially with like the wellness side of it, is it's very also like to blame yourself even if there's genetic predispositions like oh what did i do wrong it's like i ate the wrong thing i didn't exercise enough but it's also just like we live in a fucked up world and a lot of us don't have time to rest we're worried about money and those just aren't conducive those conditions aren't conducive to like you said letting the body naturally recover from whatever it is we need to recover from and like you said it's so much more work and money to eat foods that aren't bad for you i've been going through it i'm spending so much like i stopped smoking weed and i thought oh i'll save a lot of money no i'm not because i'm buying like fancy chicken and like vegetables i'm eating i'm trying to eat like fresh i'm trying not to eat leftovers so that means i have to also go shopping more often because i want to like not you know so it's just it's so much work and um not everyone even has the time to do that mm-hmm. and and like we don't even have like we're struggling even in the white house right now to like pay for t- sick leave <laughs> it's like so it's like no wonder you know it's it's really um it's it's not a good and that's why again that pills there's a, like a very uh you know yeah in a, in a world where we there's no like national paid sick leave paid you know family leave and things like that it's like yeah like if something hurts let's just treat it with a pill because i have to keep going mm, damn that, that's a whole nother conversation yeah it's a so. whole other thing i know i'm getting us to have these little <laughs> side tracks but uh what i'm thinking is my role in what we're talking about here uh appears to be sort of like a health liaison agent coach something there because in my day-to-day sexual health advocacy it's you know this concept that sexual health is mental health and through that i've learned that sexual health is whole person health i've learned that mental health is whole person health and so much of me coming in hey my stomach hurts and then with the correct sequence of questioning I may be able to share things about my lifestyle that probably need to be changed beyond just smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol <laughs> or doing any recreational drugs, but also the environments I'm in. And it's so tricky because I think doctors do have it hard. Doctors, healthcare professionals in general have a very 
tight tightrope that they have to walk on between being professional and being offensive. Uh, <laughs> if we look at uh, what what's what? No, I'm just laughing at uh, that. I don't know. <laughs> but, and I, I say this because like um, the way that a person might you know ask, well, how did I get herpes? The obvious answer is that you had sex, right? <laughs> so <laughs> a doctor saying that is, it's like, oh, shit, I have to be very careful with how I wear this. Well, uh, and then you've got to, like, use parts of your brain that are simple and not really what you went to school for and what you learned in school. And you've got to, like, just, you've got to be a certain type of person in order to do that, right? Whereas if I ask, man, how did this happen? You know, for you to be able to just objectively be like, hey, well, here's some of the statistics. The reality is a lot of people have it. Um, and the 87% of the population of people who do have it don't know that they have it. So you might have just gotten it from someone who didn't know they have it. And that is completely different than, well, you had sex. That's <laughs> like the obvious answer, right? But it, it, And that's probably not the best example, but I see it with the, the students, like how our interactions are i know that they're they're like looking for the right thing to say or they're looking for a way to word it in a professional way and i think um going back to what i was starting to say with the uh like coach piece it's being a middleman so to speak for people who just don't know how to engage with their healthcare provider Right. And I'm someone that people feel safe saying a lot more to me in relation to herpes because I'm open about having herpes to where I can give them essentially a script or an outline of what to take to their doctor. Hey, this antibodies test is really confusing to me. Does this mean that uh, I do or don't have herpes? I don't know. Um, I take these medications and I've read, I've read online that the herpes medication causes these symptoms or these things going to conflict. And these are just like things that people in the moment of being diagnosed are just not going to think about mm -hmm. or not going to ask. And it requires a level of safety in order to do so. But anyways, I, I use that example because there is there are so many human components here. And I think that the only way to really identify what the healthcare providers need in order to be able to better support patients is going to be to talk to them and present them with what patients are saying so that I can get their responses. Well, here's why. Here's some issues that we have with the system. And then we can look at what changes can be made to accommodate for what the system is doing. Because that's really all we can do. I don't see myself like coming in and just, like, it's been six years. CDC ain't trying, they ain't talked to me yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you've tried. <laughs> you've, yeah. They ain't opening my DMs. <laughs> they ain't accepting my proposals. I got one of my board members is on the uh, board of the CDC's STD prevention conference. She's like, oh, yeah, how about this one? And they shot that shit down. It just didn't get voted on. Wow. Let me, let me say that. I don't know what actually happened. Objectively, mm -hmm. I know she saw it. She was like, hey, I vote for this one. And I didn't get to speak. I did get to teach a yoga class there. You're, yeah, you're an incredible person. I really, I hope this project moves forward, especially because, like you said, I think the only way i think reaching the doctors is really important getting patient feedback but also like training like that's the thing training the doctors finding out what they need help with giving them 
you know, some training on how to talk to someone who has a diagnosis. And like, also, I think even using like creating a space where they can help each other, because some of them, you know, there are probably not as, you know, it's probably uh, more of the minority, but there are a couple who are doing it well. And I think like being able to show that and be like, like I asked, I think I've told you this, I asked, um, okay, sorry, I'm going to, my brain's all over the place. I just wanted to say, before I say what I was going to say, the thing that makes it so important that doctors know, and, and nurse practitioners, nurses, whoever, and because that's the other thing, nurses shouldn't be left out. They very often are. Um, and that's why you have some really shitty nurses. You have some incredible nurses, but then you have nurses who, it's like, yeah, they didn't get trained in anything because people are like, ah, oh, nurses, whatever. And then we can also add like that component of burnout. Oh, yeah. Especially with COVID. Like these people are overworked. They're dealing with stuff. Um, but the other thing I was going to say, I think this is so important to get medical professionals trained in how to, to make people comfortable and to deal with the mental health side of it is also because let's be honest, like a lot of times people might be going to these doctors for, you know, and they might be getting a diagnosis and that might be the first time they've met this doctor because a lot of people don't have a primary care health provider or a regular place that they go to um, for many reasons. You know, like I, for a while, I was switching insurances every year. <laughs> and so that would mean like I couldn't always keep the same doctor. So anyway, my point is it's very important also for that reason too, um, to be able to create that comfort, even if it's the first time you've met and you have to kind of give somebody some not so easy news. Um, but what I was going to say is I think you know, I was asking my old gynecologist, again, I can't see her anymore because of insurance, but she was my gynecologist for a while. And I remember asking her because, you know, we were, um, I feel like new in our, our work relationship and I was thinking a lot about it. And I was saying to her, I was like, what do you say to someone who gets a herpes diagnosis? And she said, you know, like I say a lot of things, but what she was saying, like one thing people a lot of times will ask and they'll be very upset is like, you know, will I ever find love again or sex again? Will I ever find, you know, be able to connect with somebody again? And what she said, I almost cried because she was like, you know what I say to them? I say that, you know, sure, like there might be some people who like, you know, that's a deal breaker for them. But, you know, for everybody, there's, you know, there's people for whom like risk is worth it. Cause that's the thing. She was like, there's risk. There's always a risk with a sexual encounter. And the question is whether or not that person, um, and, and the, you know, one of the big things is whether or not that person is worth it. And she was like, and I tell the patient, like, you're worth it. And I was like, I'm going to cry. Like, cause I can imagine that. And she's really thoughtful. So I, I also think this program should show examples like not just focusing on you need to do this better you need to do this it's like there's also there's people who are a positive example it's just a matter of finding them and showcasing them as an example because i think maybe it would help them if they saw like it, it could be that simple it's like you said it's really just dealing with the human part um the human person in front of you who has emotions of how this is going to affect their life and it's not just, oh, am I going to have an outbreak? It's like, yeah, how is this going to affect my relationships? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess with that said, it's important to 
survey the healthcare providers, interview healthcare providers. Um, I have a network of people that I can tap into to just sort of see where they are and identify what questions need to be asked, what resources need to be available to them. And I think that really is gonna come down to time. So how can we make time more efficient? That may look like getting people uh, getting patients even involved more, um, general people, the general populations involved more. Uh, there's a lot of volunteer organizations. There's a lot of like sexual health related organizations that do a really good job because the people who are there, you care. You know, not to say that the healthcare providers who are getting paid don't care, but I recognize that there's been a huge difference in how I engage with my sexual healthcare provider at a sexual health related organization versus a primary care physician. That's completely different. And there's lessons to be taken away there too. And there's the environment that plays a major role in it. So um, as I begin to dive into this and explore uh, the other side of what I've been doing over the last six years, which is working with the health professionals now. Um, I want I want more stories. Like I want for people to share more details around uh, their experiences with healthcare professionals so that I can get your side, take it to the other side and begin to build that bridge that can hopefully bring us a lot closer together and we can increase that percent or wait not increase decrease that percentage that i talked about earlier oh, yeah. of between healthcare providers not talking to patients about sex initially and then patients not initiating conversations with their healthcare providers so yeah I, i'm i'm pumped for this um i thank you for being willing to get started with this conversation that's a wire hanging i thought something was crawling i don't know what i thought but uh no i'm very thankful to you for helping me with this accountability episode i would i guess i want to call it and um yeah we'll we'll get to see how things progress um of course i want to have you involved as best i can whatever that looks like um so yeah thank you thank you it's nice nice talking to you in person yeah oh yeah i'm in new york today at the time of this recording, February 10th. Wow, days are <laughs> running together. All right, that concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, share this podcast. You can also donate by visiting the new and improved spfpp.org website. Thanks again, Jenny. And um, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at CourtneyBrain underscore. I'm on TikTok. I don't like it one bit, um, but I'm on there. And that's CourtneyBrain underscore as well. Be on the lookout for the HSV survey if you're listening to this and you're someone who has herpes. Um, the 2023 HSV survey will be released as soon as we can get IRB approval. Uh, it's pending. It's been pending since like December holidays and all these other things that they got going on have probably slowed that down. But there's going to be that and then i'm gonna start working on working with healthcare professionals all right till next time yeah next episode